Good morning, once again. Welcome to Calvary. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15? Now, as we have been working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, we find ourselves right in the middle of several chapters that, as we have said, formed Jesus' final words to his disciple before his crucifixion, chapters 13 through 16. And in that regard, the Lord is revisiting and reminding them, his closest men, uh, men uh, of the most important things he shared with them over the course of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. Now, one of the verses we focused on the last couple of weeks was verse 16, where Jesus said, You do not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Last week we said that even though the Lord chose you for salvation, chose us all for salvation as Christians, He also has appointed us for special service, that we should bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Now, as we closed last week's message to kind of set it up for this week, we said that, look, understand, just because the Father chose you and Jesus saved you and the Holy Spirit wants to use you, that, that doesn't mean that if you choose to serve God with your life that the world is going to applaud you. And that brings us now to this new section. Let's read with, starting with verse 18, where Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. And so, guys, this section deals with the hatred and antagonism of the world towards Jesus and his disciples. And as we just said, we are still in the section that runs from chapters 13 through 16, which makes up Jesus' farewell address to his disciples. And he used most of this farewell discourse to comfort them. Because their hearts were deeply troubled by the revelations he had dropped upon them earlier in the evening when they were still in the upper room. You can check out chapter 13, primarily verses 21 to 38. The two big bombshells he dropped on them was, first of all, he was going away. And they couldn't go with him. Now, for three and a half years, wherever he went, they went. Now he tells them he's going somewhere that they can't come. And that has caused their hearts to be crushed. Why can't we go? Where's he going that we can't go with him, right? But then he really dropped a bombshell on them when he said that one of them was going to betray him. 
one of his closest men was going to betray him. And so these two bombshell revelations caused their hearts to be crushed and filled with fear. He understood that. And so starting in chapter 14, he gave them a series of promises meant to comfort their troubled hearts. Let me read these to you. First of all, that he was going away to prepare a place for them and that he would come back to take them to that place. Number two, that they would do greater works than he had done because he was going back to his father. Number three, they could ask the father anything in his name for the work of the kingdom and he would make sure they received it. Number four, once he returned to the Father, he promised to send back another helper. We know him as the Holy Spirit, who would abide with them forever. Number five, that they would be given resurrection life and power to do the work he was commissioning them to do for his name. Number six, they would be giving, given divine knowledge to understand all he had taught them while he was with them. Number seven, he promised to give them a supernatural peace that went beyond human understanding. Number eight, he further instructed them that as long as they abided in him, his supernatural life would flow through them and bear much fruit to the kingdom of God. Number nine, he told him he was leaving his divine joy with them and that their joy would be full. And then number 10, he told them that he now considered them his friends loved by him in a special way, proving it by revealing to them the will of his Father and partnering with them in continuing the work the Father had given the Son to do while on the earth. And so he gave them these fantastic promises to comfort and encourage their hearts in his absence. But then to balance things out so they wouldn't have an unrealistic view of ministry, he presents to them a troubling reality. And that is that even though they have, you know, all these promises and all these blessings and all the gifts and empowerments from the Holy Spirit at their disposal, he tells them the reality is that they would find themselves living in enemy territory in the midst of a hostile, rebellious, Christ-hating world. And since they represent him, well the world would hate them also with the same fiery venom that they had, the world had hated him, Christ, with. Jesus wanted them to understand that even though he had given them so many great and precious promises, their ministry was not going to be an easy road. I wish every young person who um, is starting a ministry for the Lord or getting involved in ministry would be sat down by their spiritual mentor and explain to them that, look, uh, ministry is the greatest blessing in the world. There's no greater honor than to serve the Lord. But I want you to know going in that it's not easy. Uh, somebody said ministry is a contact sport. Not well, sometimes it is literally. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, when you serve the Lord, um, if you're not, if you don't do it as unto the Lord, and I, I say that real, uh, you know, with all my heart. All right, if you don't do it because you love Jesus, ministry is going to beat the life out of you, and you're going to wind up leaving ministry disillusioned, discouraged, and bitter. I've seen it happen. But if you're always doing it for Jesus, it doesn't matter what people think of you, what they say about you, how they treat you. 
Because Jesus said, whatever you do for even a little one in my name, give them a cup of cold water, you'll not lose your reward. So if you're not going to do ministry for Jesus, uh, you're not going to last in ministry. I can tell you that from experience, okay? But uh, it's, it wasn't going to be an easy road. That's what he wanted to communicate to them. He was sending them out as sheep among wolves. They needed to understand that truth up front, lest you know, they get an unrealistic view of the Christian life in general and ministry in particular, and thereby become quickly disillusioned by what awaited them. So in this section, we have presented to us the hostility of the world toward the people of God. And by the way, Jesus would tell these men, and all of us uh, by extension, that the world hating us is really the cost of discipleship. Jesus told them to count the cost, right? He said, don't even think about coming after me unless you first count the cost. Lest you start something you can't finish. And that's a great dishonor to the kingdom of God, right? So count the cost. And one of the costs is going to be you're going to lose your friends, probably a lot of your family. You're going to be hated without a cause. People that were close friends are going to not only turn disown you, they're going to turn against you. But it's all a part of the cost of being one of Jesus' disciples. Remember, didn't he tell us, I haven't come to bring peace, but what? A sword, right? Uh, a person's greatest enemies are going to be within their own household. Paul said it. He said, those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. It wasn't if, maybe. It was a foregone conclusion. It's part and parcel of being a Christian, persecution from the world which includes often our families who are unsaved. Now listen, verse 17 forms a kind of transition or bridge between, you know, the, the things that Jesus has just done saying to them, you know, the warm kind of fuzzy things, the warm, tender, <laughs> loving relationship and promises of Jesus to his disciples. And then in contrast, he lays on them the cold, harsh reality of hostility and antagonism they would experience uh, from the world at large. Look at verse 17. These things I command you that you love one another. The Greek word, of course, is agape. It's a sacrificial love. And you have to see that verse in the entire context. What he's saying to these men is, keep on loving one another sacrificially because, guys, you're going to need each other desperately in the days ahead, days, weeks, months, years ahead. You're going to need to depend on one another for help and support as you begin to experience the hatred of the world that will be poured out against you because the world is going to hate you. Look, guys, the world sure isn't going to love us. So we have to love one another. And without the fellowship and support of fellow believers in the local church, it can be a lonely world out there. In fact, it is a lonely world for many Christians. Why? Because they have isolated themselves from the body of Christ. Some because of COVID, uh, but others for a lot of other reasons. Uh, sometimes there's this, um, you know, we Americans are, are uh, fiercely independent. And sometimes that gets brought into our Christianity. That's a bad quality. It might be a great quality if you're an American, uh, but we're now members of God's kingdom. And as such, God doesn't want us to be fiercely independent. He wants us to be fiercely dependent. When I'm weak, I'm strong, right? When I'm trusting in the Lord and not relying on my own strength, then God can really use me. 
So, you know, the world isn't going to love us, therefore we have to love each other. And understand that, you know, the only way we're going to make it, I mean, it's hard enough to make it as a Christian in this fallen world when you're in fellowship with the body of Christ. But when you isolate yourself from the body of Christ, and now the devil has peeled you off, boy, are you, uh, you've got a bullseye on your head. This is why the Bible says, don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. We need each other. We're like cells in a human body. You take a cell out of a human body and put it on a table. It doesn't take long for that cell to die. It's going to literally shrivel, shrivel up and die. We are cells in the body of Christ, so to speak. And the idea is we need to be connected to each other. To use a different metaphor, you take a branch from a tree like, or a branch from a vine, you cut it off from the vine, you put it on the ground, it eventually withers and, and dies. That's the whole idea be, between, of what Jesus was saying earlier in chapter 15. He goes on to use different language, different metaphors. The idea is the same. We need to be connected with him in daily fellowship, abiding in him. But we also need to be connected to each other. Very important point. And so the world doesn't accept us. That's a foregone conclusion. Don't try to be a friend of the world. Anyone who makes themselves a friend of the world is what to God? An enemy, right? Oh, but I have friends in the world. Pray for them. Oh, but I like to hang out with them. That's a bad idea. Don't fellowship with people in the world. Pray for them. If you, hang, if you have any contact with them, you know, you can, you can go out to dinner and witness to them. But don't share with them your deepest hurts and struggles. You're casting your pearls before the swine. I'm sorry. I don't mean to. Jesus said that, right? I'm not just purposely trying to put down unbelievers. He said that. You, you are a different person than you once were. You're a child of God. You're a triune being. They're still a two-dimensional creature, body and consciousness. They're like the animal kingdom. They don't have a spirit that connects with God and worship and fellowship. We do. And you can't share your heart with the world. Pray for the world. Love the world in the sense that you love the people of the world, not what the world's into, and so on, right? So... The world isn't going to accept us, and if you try to be a friend of the world, the world's going to hate you even more. Why? Because you're trying to be their friend, and they, they don't want to be your friend. They want to look for things they can hold against you. You're a hypocrite. You're, well, I just go out with the guys after work to have a beer. I want to show them I'm still one of the guys. That's a bad idea. You're not one of the guys. You're a child of God now. Stay separate. Reach out to them. You don't jump in the, in the quicksand to pull a person out of the quicksand. You stand on the shore, throw them a rope. That's what the gospel is. You stand on the shore uh, from the world and you throw them. People are drowning in sin. They're on their way to hell. You know, we don't jump into the world to help them out of the world is the idea, right? And so, guys, the only ones that we have to count on for support in the Christian life is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mean the whole Godhead, the whole Trinity, but primarily the Lord Jesus Christ and one another. So Jesus introduces the subject of the world's hatred toward us. Using the transition of verse 17, and notice, he didn't make it optional. He didn't say, if you feel like it, love each other. He said, these things I command you, that you love one another. Again, the love of God being manifested to the people of God for one another is going to be vital. If these men who were listening to Jesus 2,000 years ago on the night before his crucifixion, and it trickles down to all of us who are his disciples today. 
The love of God working through the people of God is absolutely vital if we're going to be able to face whatever is coming our way. As they needed God's love working through each other to face what was coming their way as they went into all the world preaching the gospel. So in this passage, verses 18 to 25, the Lord gives them three reasons, uh, and of course all of us, three reasons why the world would hate them so vehemently. Uh, let me just paraphrase these. He tells them basically the world hates Christians because we are not of the world. Number two, the world hates Christians because it hates Jesus. And number three, the world hates Christians because it does not know God. Now we'll look at the first one today. The world hates Christians because we are not of the world. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Guys, again, we are not of the world. We are not of the world. We live in it, but are no longer a part of it. When we got saved, God delivered us out of this world. And we became the church of Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated church in the New Testament is the word ekklesia, a word that literally means an assembly of called out ones. An assembly of called out ones. It speaks of those who have been called out of the world, yes, spiritually and morally, to a life of separation and service to God because we're now his own special people. You don't have to turn to it, but Peter tells us this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter said, but you are, and I'm paraphrasing, you are now, as Christians, you are now a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, a people of God, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He's contrasting, of course, the old life with the new life. He's contrasting uh, you when you were unsaved and now that you are saved. Listen, we have been called out of the world morally and spiritually. That's true. But we are still living in the world physically, aren't we? We could say we are still living in the world, but the world is no longer living in us. Or it shouldn't be. Or it shouldn't be. That's the definition of a carnal Christian. When the world is still living in them to a degree that the world is still controlling them. It kind of reminds me of the children of Israel that God delivered out of Egypt. Remember now, Egypt is a type of the world in the Bible. Okay? Jesus is talking about the world. Interesting, we have kind of a, a, an application or an illustration of this, I should say, in the Old Testament how that the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt by God in one night, right? One, God delivered Israel out of Egypt in one night. But it took 40 years to deliver Egypt out of them. Somebody has said that salvation is the miracle of a moment, but sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Because it's easy for God to work miracles. It's easy for God to work miracles. When it comes to us, he's not going to just say the word and we're poof, super Christian. It's all about us growing. 
That's why he gave us children that grow up. Because it was, it was training us to understand as Christians, when we're born of the Spirit, we then need to grow up. It's a very important concept. In fact, God said in the Old Testament, he said he was going to lead them into the promised land, into warfare. He said, I'm not going to give you victory all in one day or one hour. But little by little, you're going to have victory until you gain the whole land. In other words, you're a mature believer. He said in another place, warfare is good for you. It keeps you, I'm paraphrasing, on your knees. It keeps you drawing close to me. If when we got saved, we had nothing but victory, we would grow self-reliant and independent. We wouldn't need God, and we would our walk would suffer greatly. God's too smart for that. So it only took God one evening to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. It took them 40 years to get Egypt out of them. Very important that we understand that. You know, I was telling first service that spiritual warfare, and we, a lot of people when they think of spiritual warfare, Christians, they think of casting demons out. Some churches, that's all they ever do is cast demons out, okay? That's their whole ministry. It's not the teaching of the word or anything else, it's just casting demons out, right? Because they feel that's how people will get saved and grow and so on. And look, that's only a small part of the Christian life. Yeah, people get demon-possessed, but it's not like something that is, you know, everywhere all the time, most people know. Spiritual warfare, really at its core, is a battle for control of your thinking. That's what the Bible says, because the Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And why Paul the Apostle said in Romans 12, verse 2, when you get saved, don't any longer... Uh, think like the world thinks. Be conformed. Don't be conformed any longer to the world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All the days of our life before we got saved, we had been brainwashed by the devil to think a certain way. Why? Because if he could get us to think a certain way, he could get us to live a certain way. And so the God of this world orchestrated everything in it to appeal to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. 1 John 2, 15 through verse 17 talks about this. All right? Everything was designed by the devil to appeal to our flesh because he wanted us to think fleshly thoughts. That's what carnal Christianity is, is when Christians uh, think more along the lines of fleshly thoughts than spiritual thoughts, right? Uh, the idea is it's very important that we understand that uh, the only way we're going to grow as Christians is to love God more than the world. But Satan is always trying to get it. Now, if you're a Christian, he's lost you. The devil knows that. If you're not a Christian, he tries to keep you under his control, loving the world and so on, until you die, then you belong to him forever. But if you're a Christian, you've given your heart to Christ, he's lost you. So what does he do now? He tries to get into your head and get you to love the world more than you love God, because if he can get you to be carnal, he can take you out of the, out of the battle, he can take you out of the race, right? You're no longer a threat to him, he can neutralize your effectiveness for God. And so even though he's lost you, you're not reaching anybody else for the Lord. So it's okay if he's lost you. God sticks you on a shelf if you're carnal, and that's where you stay. Very important that we understand what we're up against, okay, what we're really talking about. You know, the world that Jesus used here in John 15, or for that matter, uh, what John used throughout 
his entire gospel and his epistles is the Greek word cosmos. See the word world there? It's the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos is not a word, word that refers to nature or ecology. It's a word that refers to the world system. The world system. In that regard, it's a theological expression denoting the whole fallen world system of depravity, evil, open hostility and rebellion against God and the people of God. It's a big word. Okay. Compasses a lot, right? Now, when we think of the world system, we naturally think of human governments. But the word cosmos is really more about the spiritual powers behind earthly governments than it is about the physical and political governments themselves. Um, in that regard, it is more of a spiritual term than a political one. Even though earthly governments are implicit in the definition, definition of cosmos, yeah, it does include earthly governments, right? Um, but really, it's speaking to the powers behind. I'm thinking of the demonic powers behind earthly governments, uh, for the most part. Didn't John, tell, uh, first of all, understand that the governments of this world are under the control of the devil, whom the Bible calls the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says that. Also, John says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God, children of God, and that the whole world, the whole world system lies under the sway of the wicked one. That Greek word means the control of, the control of the wicked one. John is telling us that the whole fallen world system is being controlled by the devil who carries out his will through a vast army of fallen angels and demons, but also through fallen humanity whom he has taken captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, verse 26. All unbelievers, they don't understand this, uh, but they're actually working for Satan's purposes. Hang on to that thought, right? So when Jesus warned his disciples of the hostility they would experience from the world, he had in mind the fallen world system of darkness, depravity, and demonism that was under the control of the devil. It is this evil world system that is going to hate believers in Christ. Actually, guys, what we uh, have here, to kind of back up and maybe get a bigger view of what's happening, okay? What we have here are two opposing kingdoms that are in conflict or at war with each other. What the Bible calls the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. You remember we studied chapter 8 of John's gospel. Jesus was talking to the scribes, but in particular the Pharisees. And at one point, he says to them in chapter 8, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. As we said when we studied this passage in John chapter 8, there are two kingdoms that all human beings belong to, all human beings. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. Each kingdom is entered into through birth. Satan's kingdom is entered into through physical birth. And God's kingdom is entered into through a second birth, a spiritual birth, as when a person receives Jesus into their heart as their Savior, and they are born again, John 3, right? 
You have to understand, though, every person born into this world physically is born a descendant of Adam. In Adam all die. In Adam all are under the curse, right? Uh, those that are born into this world physically are born uh, automatically under Satan's control. He's the God of this world. When a person is born, they enter into a world dominated by, controlled by the devil. It's his kingdom. And of course, as they grow, the devil is actively working in their hearts and minds to get them to think the way he wants to do the things he wants them to do, ultimately to love the world so much they die and never receive Christ. Of course, God's kingdom is a kingdom of light, which represents truth. And uh, a person is only born into that. Somebody has said years ago, I listened to a pastor talk about this. He said, um, the church of Jesus Christ is not something you join. It's something you're born into. People can join a church, but that doesn't mean it's the body of Christ necessarily. And so you can only, you can't join the body of Christ. You've got to be born into it. And that's by accepting Jesus as your Savior, Right. But um, these two kingdoms are entered into through birth, and uh, they, th these two births become the entry points into two very different kingdoms ruled by two very different kings. The God of the Bible, the Bible calls Yahweh, and the God of this world we know as Satan. The Bible calls God's kingdom a kingdom of life and light. It calls Satan's kingdom a kingdom of death and darkness. Now, guys, when Jesus told these men, John 8, the Pharisees, when he told them that he was from above heaven and that they were from beneath this fallen world system, he was making reference to these two kingdoms. Understand that these two kingdoms are at war with each other. See, this is the thing that unbelievers don't understand. Uh, they know that they're at war with God, okay, as they, they grow up and uh embrace the devil's way of thinking and somebody after first service after i got done speaking about this she showed me online uh a, a bunch of young people uh flashing the middle finger i said what's this what is this a picture of what are they doing they're flashing the middle finger at god and christians so that was a visible illustration of what we're talking about those people that are born into this world physically, but haven't been born again spiritually. They are under Satan's control. Uh, often they don't even realize it. They just know they love to do what their flesh wants, okay? Uh, but, you know, some of them feel like, well, they're neutral. Well, I, I'm not for Satan or God. I'm neutral. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're what? There is no neutrality. All unbelievers, whether they realize it or not, are working for Satan's kingdom. And they are at war, some more than others, are at war with the people of God's kingdom. When we got saved, hopefully somebody told you you were enlisting in an army. We're going to war. I'm not sure every Christian hears that, person hears that when they're getting witnessed to. Look, Christianity is awesome. God forgives you, adopts you into the family. You're going to spend eternity in heaven. Oh, but I want to just tell you, while you're on the earth, you're going to be in war. You're going to be a soldier in the army of Jesus Christ, who is our, our general. Turn to Ephesians 6, because Paul talks about this. 
Now, we could pull out dozens of verses on this, but I think you get the idea. Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10, Paul talks about the war that we are in as believers. And he said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You're going to need that power to fight the good fight, right? Verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places or in the spirit realm. Now, all these are a reference to spiritual entities that have aligned themselves with the devil. When we studied Ephesians 6, we said that when we gave our lives to Jesus, we entered into a war. A war that, although invisible, invisible, was still very much real. We are at war. Listen with an extremely powerful, super-intelligent, hyper-malevolent spirit being known as the devil, who commands a very powerful army of demonic warriors. The devil and his army are determined to destroy people in hell by keeping them prisoners here on the earth. And we are the army of God commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ to go into all the world with the only thing that can set them free, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, it's the only thing strong enough. What, what do I mean when I say that the devil wants to keep unbelievers in prison until they die and they forever belong to him? This is what spiritual warfare is. As I said earlier, spiritual warfare, yeah, includes casting out demons, but that's a small part of it. What it really is about, it's a, it's a, a war for control of a person's thinking. The devil wants you to embrace lies or unbelievers so that he can keep them under control and god wants to give them the truth which alone can set them free the classic one of the classic passages of spiritual warfare is out of second corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4 where paul the apostle said look we're in a war but the weapons of our warfare they're not carnal they're not physical but they are mighty in god for the pulling down of strongholds spiritual strongholds right uh while we don't wrestle he said uh, uh he said the casting down verse 5 arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the obedience of Christ. What is Paul saying there, right? Casting down arguments. This is spiritual warfare. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Here's what he's saying. Here's the war we're fighting against. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against uh, earthly or physical weapons. The weapons of our warfare are mighty they're spiritual, and they're the only things that can pull down spiritual strongholds in people's lives is the idea. Because the, the devil has taken them captive. How? By, in, by brainwashing them to believe in certain belief systems, ideologies, the Greek word for, you know, the, the, the um, weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments. The word is legismos. It means, uh, it means uh, ideologies, belief systems. We are in a war to pull down from people's lives by giving them the truth kindly, gently. Don't argue with Paul with unbelievers. But in humility, gently correct them. 
giving them the truth so that God will grant them repentance that they escape the snare of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will, right? But we are, we are wanting to give people the truth that the light comes on in their minds, in their hearts, that they abandon the false belief system that they were imprisoned by the devil in. Every high and lofty ideology. How many people have embraced ideologies and they look down on you as a Christian for being a dummy, an unenlightened boob, all those young people flipping off the camera, flipping off God. If you'd ask those geniuses what they believed in, be interesting to hear, right? I was telling first service that you, you, if you unless you go out and ask folks, well, what do you actually believe about things? What do you believe is the origin of everything? And so on, you'd be shocked. I was telling, talk to the to Mo and the evangelism team. They go out. They're confronted with people all the time, and some of the weird. And they've shared it with me. Some of the weird things people have embraced. It's like spiritual sizzler out there. It's a smorgasbord. Oh, a little Mormonism. Oh, I like this. A little New Age. Uh, a little Catholicism. I like that. Blend it all together, and I got my little plate of all little spiritual goodies. This is my belief system. And we have to come along and say, well, actually, your belief system is pretty rancid. Don't eat that. Don't, don't partake of that. Okay? Nothing good's going to come of you, you, you know, partaking of that. Right? And we give them the, the gospel. But look. Anytime a person dares to stand up for Jesus, goes out into a dark world, controlled by the devil, and dares to stand up for Jesus, be a light, gently sharing the truth of God, let me tell you this. The, the world is going to attack that Christian with everything it has. Because the world is under the control of the devil, who hates the Lord, who hates the people of God. And as he goes, so goes the folks that are following him. He's a persecutor of God and God's people, so will the world that he controls be. Guys, when we talk about the world and its hatred for the followers of Jesus, we need to clarify something, okay? Because automatically we think of atheists and agnostics. Um, it's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. You see, much of the world system, listen, is very religious. Do you realize that? Mm -hmm. Much of the world, I'm talking about the fallen world system, is very religious which is one of Satan's greatest deceptions and best used weapons against the people of God. That is because, listen to me now, religious zeal is the most powerful zeal in the world. Nothing compares to religious zeal. Why? Because if a person thinks they're serving God, there's no greater purpose. And that will lead to no greater passion, no greater zeal, right? Didn't Jesus go on to say in chapter 16 to his disciples, there is coming a time when those who kill you, talk about religious folks now, the Jewish establishment, but later on others like Islam comes down the pike. There is coming a time when those who kill you will actually think they're serving God. Religious zeal, right? Guys, I am seeing this like never before in our lives. We are seeing the hatred of the world. And I'm talking about those who are still under the control of the devil. We are seeing the hatred of the world being manifested against the people of God like never before. Well, in my lifetime. We have some in our own church that have been canceled. 
by their unsaved family members. They have been expunged from the lives of their closest friends and families because they are Christians and conservatives who dared vote for Donald Trump. I don't know what it is with the left. Why do so many people on the left let Donald Trump live rent-free in their heads? I got news for you. Biden's not living rent-free in my head. I mean, the man's been out of office now for almost a year. And they still can't get over him, right? And they can't forgive anybody who had the audacity to support him or vote for him. And now, these Christians are being further hated and ostracized because they won't take the COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, it's gotten to the point where it's not a matter that they just simply disagree with us, right? Or simply believe that we're wrong or even stupid, right? I mean, it's one thing if you have uh, an unbelieving friend who, you know, who, I don't know, hated Donald Trump, I guess you, they don't have to hate him, but, uh, and now sees that you're not taking the COVID-19 vaccine. It's one, for, for the, one thing for them to disagree with you. Say, you know, I think you're foolish. I wish you reconsider. You're kind of dumb. I can deal with all that, right? But now it has morphed into religious fanaticism on their part. Think about this. It's not even a political issue, although it was at first. It's no longer just a moral issue, although in many ways it's still that. Now it's become a religious issue. They have crossed the line into religious fanaticism. By that I mean they don't just think we're wrong, they think we're evil. Let that sink in for a minute. That's a whole different ball game. It's one thing for a person to think a Christian is wrong. It's another thing for them to think that they are evil. I recently have heard people on cable TV use the term cult to describe us. They're trying to frame this in religious terms because somewhere deep down they recognize the greatest zeal a person has is religious zeal. If we turn this into a, into a religious thing, then those on the left are going to come at or come after Christians with a religious zeal. It's coming. And why are we evil, they think? Because we are killing people by not taking the vaccine. We are now being labeled domestic terrorists. And some, and some on the left want to ban us from flying on airplanes, even as terrorists are banned from flying on airplanes today. Many are advocating on the left that we, as Christians, and let's be honest, this is really focused more at Christians, right? Yeah, conservatives, but this, most of the targeted group are Christians. Many on the left are advocating that we be banned from all public gatherings like concerts, restaurants, sporting events, and even from going to, the gro going to the grocery store if unvaccinated. You think I'm wrong? Read the paper. LA is about ready to put that into law. You're not vaccinated, you can't go to the grocery store. I've heard others on the left say that 
uh, unvaccinated people, again, mostly Christians they have in mind, should have their children taken from them by the state, and that they themselves then should be put in re-education camps, gulags. One Democratic lawmaker even suggested recently that it should be legal to shoot the unvaccinated because after all, they, speaking of us, are an unmitigated evil walking among us and society needs to be purged of all these, listen, murderers. Did you hear that one school board person say if a child comes to school without a mask on, because some of the states are not mandating that, that child is guilty of committing murder. This is off the charts lunacy. Flat out off the charts idiocy and lunacy. Why should it be legal for people to shoot the unvaccinated? Because we're murderers. We're not just wrong, we're evil. Evil murderers need to be removed from a society one way or another. Not allowed to walk among the good folks, the virtuous. What constitutes a virtuous person? person that wears a mask in their car alone in the shower. I mean, it's ridiculous. Sydney uh, and I were out yesterday, and we happened, a guy happened to pull up next to us, and the man had a mask as big as his head. I don't even know how he was seeing out of it. I don't know if he cut holes or, you know, but I'm, I'm thinking, he's virtuous, honey. Now, that's a good person. You and I, we're terrible people because we dare drive in our car together or alone without a mask. I've never seen the level of hatred and vitriol being, being leveled today um, at those of us who are Christians by the world at large. You know, there's times when the world will tolerate us and leave us alone, okay? There are even some issues that we in the world might agree with uh, at times. I mean, there's a lot of folks in the world that want liberty. They want, uh, they want law and order. A lot of folks who are not saved don't advocate abortion. I can agree with them on those issues, right? I have never seen a time, though, when the world felt so strongly about something we did not want to do, and so they are turning on us with a level of vitriol and hatred I, I haven't seen in my lifetime. Folks, the only way to interpret, interpret what's going on is that this is the newest way Satan has invented to persecute the people of God. And it's laying the groundwork for the coming of the Antichrist and his government. Now look, I don't believe the vaccines are the mark of the beast. Please don't go home and say, Pastor Phil said that the vaccines are the mark of the beast. I, I am not saying that. I don't believe the vaccines are the mark of the beast, but they are certainly laying the groundwork by mentally preparing people for the mark when it becomes available. It's promoting groupthink like I've never seen before. And when the mark does become available, the world at large is going to line up to take it with the same religious zeal that people are lining up to take the vaccines now. The difference being that no one at that time is going to be deceived into taking the mark. I was telling First Service and we're studying Revelation on Wednesday night, 
Somebody asked me uh, some weeks ago, will people be deceived into taking the mark of the beast? No. They will know exactly what they're doing. The idea between the mark of the beast on somebody is the idea of when a, uh, a rancher br uh, brands their cattle with a certain mark. Now, the cattle has no choice, in it, but I'm making a point. That brand signifies that animal belongs to the rancher. Horse, cattle, whatever, right? People are going to line up to take the Antichrist brand. They're going to wear it as a badge of honor. They're going to know exactly what they're doing. Nobody will ever be tricked into taking the mark of the beast. If they take it, they're going to know full well what they're doing. And they're giving the middle finger to God when they do it. Because they have decided the Antichrist is their God. And those that don't take the mark are going to be what? Ostracized? They're not going to be able to buy or sell? Come back and listen to Revelation when we get to chapter 13. And how we've always thought of they can't buy or sell without the mark. But you, you can't buy yourself without the, a number of oh, that's credit. It's, I don't think it's just credit anymore. Like, I'm not sure it was ever credit. We'll talk about that, okay? But those that don't take the mark, don't align themselves with the Antichrist, are faithful to Jesus Christ, uh, they're going to be uh, maligned, they're going to be ostracized, they won't be able to work, buy, sell, eat, um, and eventually they'll be killed. Look, let me just say this. There are a lot of good Christians who have taken the vaccine. I'm not against that. I mean, we all have to do what we feel God is leading us to do. And so a lot of folks that have done research have decided the vaccine is the best way to go for me and my family. I respect that. I really do. I personally, this is my personal conviction, I personally believe that the vaccines, there is a malevolent component to these things. The government is pushing this way too hard. I was listening to an eminent doctor. He was, um, he is, uh, Dr. Zelenko, a Jewish doctor. He's treated over 6,000 COVID patients. Trump, Giuliani, others, world leaders he has treated. And um, uh, he was making the point that, um, well, he was making the point that there is a lot of, uh, you know, that, Children that get COVID, 99.998 recover without anything. You know, why, why, as he put it, why inject them with a death shot when almost every one of them recovers? You're a young person. He said, nine, he said, nine, nine, 99.995 recover. Uh, you, you should listen to, you can Google Dr. Zelenko. It was incredible what he was saying. So my point is that there are Christians that have, I think, been deceived. Into, uh, forgive me. I think some Christians have been persuaded by CDC and others to take the shot. I think it's deception. But I know that you did it from, from your heart, with your best intentions. Uh, I'm not likening you to people that are going to take the mark of the beast. And I believe God is gracious, and he, he watches over us. We do our best. Sometimes we think we're doing the right thing, and we don't do the right thing, and God's merciful. I want to close this morning with an article, though, written recently by a conservative commentator. His name is Wayne Allen Root. Many have asked where they could find this article. You can 
come up here, Wayne Allen Root, conservative commentator. I read his stuff. And uh, the article is entitled, Welcome to 1938. First, they came for the unvaccinated. Mr. Root begins by declaring, and I'm quoting him, this is the most important commentary I have ever written. It's time for alarm bells. It's time for me to play the part of Paul Revere. The communist tyrants and dictators are coming. The communist tyrants and dictators are coming. They're coming first for the unvaccinated Americans. He said, imagine that this is 1938 and I'm a Jew. I now understand just a little of what it felt like to be a Jew living in 1938. No, it's not the Holocaust. Nothing can compare to the Holocaust ever. But 1938 was not the Holocaust. It was the pre-Holocaust period. It was the time before the nightmare when the foundation was being laid to destroy freedoms, destroy free speech, business, and the lives of millions of Jews. Everything happening today to the American people, to the U.S. Constitution, to freedom, and particularly to the unvaccinated Americans reminds me of 1938. This is only the beginning. It gets much worse from here. First, the papers. Vaccine mandates and vaccine passports are just like 1938 when the Gestapo demanded papers from every German. You know, Republicans asked for papers from, from migrants who had broken, our, uh, broken into our country, criminals really. Democrats said, no, that's racism. Republicans asked for papers once every two years for federal, federal elections to prove you have a right to vote. Democrats said, no, that's racism. Now Democrats want American citizens, not illegal aliens, not criminals, but patriots born in this country to produce papers 24-7. We'll need papers to enter restaurants, bars, nightclubs, concerts, uh, casinos, conventions, uh, and hotels, and then to board tr a train, a plane, or a bus. <coughs> we'll need papers to enter a supermarket, or we'll starve to death, uh, all for the crime of being unvaccinated all for the crime of being unwilling to inject an untested, rushed-to-production um, experimental for emergency use only shot into our bodies. What happened to the war cry of Democrats, my body, my choice? I guess it only applies to murdering babies, but it doesn't apply to dangerous ex experimental shots we don't want injected into our bodies. I mean, weren't Jews injected with experimental drugs by, depraved Nazi, by the depraved Nazi government? Wasn't that a key part in the, in the Nuremberg trials? That no government could ever again inject experimental shots into the bodies of unwilling, unwilling citizens? Isn't that a basic human right? And by the way, this isn't about vaccines. If you want the vaccine, take it. I'll never stop you. Uh, I'd never limit your freedom, your choice. Uh, this is about vaccine mandates, forcibly injecting Americans who don't want it. That's 1938. But there's much more in common with 1938. Mask mandates. If you're scared, wear them. I'm not scared. Therefore, I don't want to wear them. Mandates are about forcing individuals to lose their freedom, their choice, their individuality and human rights. That's 1938. Lockdowns are a match with the Warsaw Ghetto. Jews were locked down. Jews couldn't work. Jews couldn't travel. Jewish businesses were labeled non-essential. If government can force us to close our businesses, to kill our jobs, to decide who is non-essential, this is 1938. How about stars on clothing? That's coming. 
The vaccinated get into restaurants, bars, concerts, supermarkets, planes, and trains. They'll keep their jobs. The rest of us are marked as subhuman for life. That's the star It's coming. That's 1938. Media and social media as the public relations wing of the government. That's called propaganda. Remind you of 1938? Back then, the Jews' books were burned today. It's those conservatives, those patriots, and specifically the unvaccinated. We are silenced, you know, off of Facebook and, and, and Twitter and everything else, right? We are silenced. Silence. Our facts are labeled misleading. Only the facts that agree with big government agenda count. Again, 1938. Door-to-door -door intimidation and making lists of those who disagree with government knows best Trust me, the army of door-to-door -door vaccine brainwashers will soon be, soon be turned into an army of Gestapo gun grabbers. In 1938, that was the year that the Nazis banned Jews from owning guns. They took them door-to-door. -door. Again, 1938. Only days ago, a former Department of Homeland Security official said the unvaccinated should be on a federal no-fly list. That's exactly how Nazis attacked the Jews and others who disagreed with their agenda. It was always lists, he said. Lists of people who to be disappeared in the middle of the night. Lists of those to be sent to re-education camps. Lists of those to be sent to concentration camps. Lists of the enemies of the state. It's happening again. Maybe this time you'll only lose your job or your, your free speech. Maybe something much worse. This is, again, 1938. He closes with this. It's all disgusting and disgraceful, but I'm warning you, this is just the start. It's all, going, it's all going downhill from here, fast. This is the end of America. This is 1938, unless we stop it now. Unless we take a stand now. Unless we draw a line in the sand now. First, they came for the unvaccinated. Trust me. Next, they're coming for you, end quote. Now, I always like to leave a message on an upbeat note. <laughs> Folks, that wasn't it. Here's the upbeat note. Jesus is coming back soon. This world is imploding. This world is disintegrating. And you know, I think God is allowing it for one basic reason, to get the people of God to wake up. Our Christianity in America is way too comfortable. God is trying to get us to wake up, and he's trying to pry the world from our fingers. Too many demises in the body of Christ today. Too many demons who love this present world and are not serving God. And the Lord is using what's happening around us to pry the world from our fingers so that we become more heavenly-minded because when you're more heavily minded, you are more earthly good. So God give us grace. Keep looking up, right? Didn't Paul tell us that many years ago? Don't set your mind on things beneath. Set your mind on things above. Jesus is coming back soon. When he comes back, he is going to fix this mess and going to establish a brand new kingdom, a whole new world for us to live in. As John said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we have hope in you. There's no hope for the world. The world is imploding. The world is disintegrating, uh, Lord. And, and Lord, give us grace not to lament over the world disintegrating, but to rejoice over the fact that you're coming. 
and you're coming soon. And eventually you're going to establish a new world, a new kingdom on this earth. A place where we will live with you forever. A place where we won't have to lock our, door, our doors at night. Where every man can sit under his own fig tree and not be afraid. Where people will take their spears and, uh, and um, swords and beat them into pruning hooks and plowshares and study and practice war no more. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word and give us grace to be more heavenly minded. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.